Good morning. In uh, God's divine providence, we find ourselves with a very timely and fitting passage before us today. I'm sure all of you know, many of you know, that yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Michael when it hit Panama City as a, uh, what was it, a Class 5, Category 5 hurricane. What a tremendous day that was for us. And our great King, Jesus, has saw fit to give us the passage today where he calmed the storm. And we could chalk this up to Ron's excellent sermon schedule planning, but he won't take credit for it. I, I doubt he would. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful providential gift our Lord has given us today to strengthen our faith, to encourage us with his word. He's a gracious, gracious father. For my note takers, I have three points for you today. Uh, the first point today is that the cost of the passage the cost of the passage for those who would come aboard Christ's ship is high. That's the first point. The second point is, what does a life at sea with Jesus look like? And the third point is, what are the untold wonders that we who travel on Christ's vessel, what shall we witness? And what is our response to those wonders? So with that... In our rearview mirror, let's read the passage here, Matthew 8. This is verses 18 through 27. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed after him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? There was a man named Conan Antonio Mati, and he was an admiral in the Imperial Navy. He was born to an influential, wealthy family, and at a young age, he quickly rose up through the ranks as a highly decorated captain. Before he knew it, he was chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the Navy. Mahdi was a staunch believer in the capabilities of this brand new technological marvel of a vessel, of a ship. A ship so enormous and powerful it was deemed by many as invulnerable. His pride in the ship and his own arrogance, however, led him to be dismissive of a, a very small band of rebels that sought to destroy this behemoth of a vessel. His overwhelming confidence in the ship even led to confrontations with fellow colleagues. There was a man named General Tag, which he ran in with, and a prominent religious leader, which he constantly had issues with. And it was during one Joint Chief of Staff meeting which Mahdi had his fatal outburst, which would eventually lead to his downfall. You see, the religious leader was brought in that day, unannounced with a politician, and he said that the power of this newest ship that Mahdi was putting all his trust in was insignificant in comparison to the power of his religion. 
Now, Mahdi didn't like this. Being a man of science and war, he didn't respond well. And he looked at the religious leader and he said, Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerous ways. Your sad devotion to this ancient religion has not helped you conjure up one stolen data tape or given you clairvoyance to find the rebel's hidden fort. Before he knew it, he could finish his words. The religious leader had formed this choke-like grip in the air, and Mahdi could not breathe. The air you could cut with with a knife, the tension in the room, it was silent. No one dared to speak. The religious leader, commonly known as Darth Vader, finally broke the silence. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's a disturbing tale, a disturbing scene, as many of you know from Star Wars. (laughs) This prominent religious leader finds Mahdi's fat lack of faith disturbing. I wanted to start out with a little moment of levity because the passage before us is actually a fairly somber one about our lack of faith and about the disciples' lack of faith. All of us, like Mahdi, have moments of unbelief, of doubt, and a great fear. It causes us to distrust the Lord. And yet, and yet, God has always been faithful. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And as followers of Christ, we should aim to have a robust faith that is rooted in Christ and His Word, that is established by His Word, that is built up by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that when the storms come, When the Death Star is blown up, we might be found rooted and built on the rock that is Jesus Christ himself. It's with this that we find ourselves in verse 18. Now crowds have began to form around Jesus. Obviously, you can imagine the buzz around him as he's just performed miracles. They've seen it happen, and and a large crowd is coming to him. They want to be with him. They're excited about him. And we come here to verse 18 where he encounters two different disciples with two different situations. Listen to this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, the first man comes excited. He's just seen What Jesus has done, he has an excited heart. He's ready. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Many of us probably can remember when we first became believers, we we had this zeal and we were excited and it was like everything was new and wonderful and we were ready to go. And, And yet Jesus responds in a way that probably none of us would. Now notice he doesn't say, no, I'm sorry, you can't follow me. You don't have the right stuff. It's not it. It's not what he says. Instead, he simply tells the man the truth. He comes with excitement, and Jesus is saying, listen, this is not glamorous. The price to board that ship will be high. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. You see, those of us who follow Jesus should expect trials. We should expect to be treated as Jesus himself was treated because we have been yoked with him. And he says, listen, I was spit upon, beaten, mocked, killed. Why? Because the world hates the light and loves the darkness. And the Bible says, now you're children of light. Go forth. What a counter message 
What a counter message Jesus' words here are to the health and wealth prosperity preachers in our day. While Jesus walked the earth as a homeless man, these men and women have multi-million dollar homes and they prey on the weak and the vulnerable. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the same Son of Man who was rich, but for our sake became poor, who gave up the throne room of heaven for a manger in Bethlehem, And so he tells this enthusiastic man, you can follow us on the boat, but you need to know what it it costs to be my disciple. The, The Christian life is a life of joy, it's a life of meaning, it's a life of purpose, it's truth and wonder, but you all know it's a pilgrim life. It's an alien life. A life that is for those who are poor in spirit, and those who mourn, and those who are meek and hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are blessed in the midst of persecution. Well, what about us modern believers? I, I read these words as I was preparing for this sermon. I kept sing, sing, saying them over and over. Foxes have holes, the air, birds of the air have nests. What does is, what is Jesus want us to get out here? What is, what is the message for us here two years after Hurricane Michael? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because for months on end after Hurricane Michael, we had teams of believers coming in. And you know what we did? We ministered to homeless brothers and sisters. Millions of dollars lost in property damage, priceless, water-soaked pictures, keepsakes gone forever. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you here are still dealing with this. And I thought... What a comfort it is to worship a king who knows exactly what it feels like to be homeless. Exactly what it feels like to be in our shoes. And now to know that he's preparing a permanent address for us in heaven. You see, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus was with us then. He's with us now. It's Relevant to me because for two years, my wife and I, when we first came in here, for two years, we first time we lived in a condo, then we moved to a hotel, and then my parents were gracious enough, and we've been living in one giant room with two kids for two years as we built a house. And the house has been pushed back due to COVID. And to read these words was so powerful for me. And I'm sure many of you are still waiting for that house are still living in trailers and RVs. Jesus knows what it feels like. We're strangers and aliens, and as children of the living God, we should take great hope in this. He controls the future, doesn't he? He has a plan for us to prosper us. During an especially trying time in the work of the China Inland Mission, the great missionary, many of you know him, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary Hudson Taylor, he wrote a letter to his wife and he said this. He said, we have 25 cents in all the promises of God. (laughs) We got 25 cents on earth, but also on this hand we have all the promises of God. What marvelous riches all of us have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first disciple. The second disciple now is, comes to him. Verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
D.A. Carson, the pastor, writes this. He says, If the first scribe was too quick in promising, this disciple was too slow in performing. It's important to parse out what this man is actually asking here. Otherwise, it makes Jesus seem very cruel. What a cruel thing. Jesus won't even let this guy bury his own father. That's not what he's asking. He's not saying, hey, my dad's funeral is this weekend. I just need to go to that funeral. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, listen, my dad's older. You know, I got bills to pay. I got a house to upkeep. Who's going to take it? You know, give me a couple years. You know, maybe five, ten. Give me a couple years and then I'll come join your band. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor, puts it helpfully this way. He says, much of the concerns of politics, party tactics, committee meetings, social reforms, innocent even amusements, and so forth, may be very fitly described as burying the dead. Much of this is very needful. It's proper and commendable work, but still only such a form of business as unregenerate men can do just as well as disciples of Jesus. Let them do it. But if we are called to preach the gospel, let us give ourselves wholly to our sacred calling. You'll remember the parable of the wedding feast. And all these people are invited to the feast, and they all have excuses for why they can't come. And they seem like, you know, they're pretty good excuses. Well, I got this new field, and well, I just got, you know, this and that, and I got a new cow. And, and he says, okay, forget that then. They're not, they're not coming, right? They have excuses time after time. My wife and I have uh, two little beautiful excuses that we use quite often. You know, so sorry we couldn't make it. You know those kids. You know those kids. And it's one thing to make an excuse. That's, you know, with things that don't matter. But what Jesus is getting at here is that a life filled with excuses, a life filled with distractions, a life filled with burying the dead moments is a life where you will miss the boat. You'll miss the boat. If you keep putting off the things of God till tomorrow, if you keep saying, well, there's always tomorrow, there's always this, there's always tomorrow, I'll accept Jesus then, or I've still got plenty of time. None of us are promised tomorrow. What we are promised is found in Matthew 19, 29. Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. That's a hard teaching, and it requires a tremendous amount of faith. It required a lot of faith for what the disciples did to leave house and mother and father and field and to go for the sake of the gospel. We need to pray the words of the man in Mark 9 when he says, I do believe, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, help us, help us trust you enough that we can leave the dead to bury the dead. So finally, what about after we take the boat? We've, we've pledged our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We've joined him on the boat. We're on his vessel. What awaits us at sea with Jesus Christ? Verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Mark takes it even further. Mark tells us that the disciples came to him and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Over the past two years, how many of us can relate with the disciples? How many of us have felt like Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat? Does heaven not have 24-hour cable news? Do they, not, do, do they not know what's going on down here? Lord, do you not care if we drown? 
How does Jesus respond to his disciples in verse 26? And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You see, Jesus was roused because there was danger. But notice what he dealt with first. What was the chief danger on the boat? Not the wind, not the waves, but the disciples' unbelief. You see, there's always more danger to us as believers in our unbelief than in any outside adverse circumstance that we may find ourselves in. At some point, all of us here who believe in Jesus, we got on that boat, and how many storms have we weathered with Christ? How, how, many, how many tempests in your life have come and gone, and though the boat has been overcome and swamped with water, have you drowned? Or has the Lord kept you afloat? Has the Lord held you fast with his love time and time and time again? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. This is so, just a wonderful verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Well, didn't they just know this? Didn't the disciples just know this? Didn't they? Why did they lack faith? <clears throat> Don't we know it? Don't we just know this? Why do we continue to doubt his love and mercy? Do you think because of your present experience, wherever you are right now, your experience, whatever reality you're facing right now, do you think that he doesn't love you? If you think that, then look at your past. See how patiently He's put up with you. How slow we have been. How slow we are time and time again in our learning. And yet has the divine teacher, has he, has he given up on us? No, he continues teaching us. Do you remember when he first called you? What sort of person you were? I do. I remember what I was. He called me out of darkness into light. Can you think of how stubborn and prideful you've been all the while riding on his vessel? How often I've complained, how often you've complained about food or drink or dress or circumstances, yet he's continued to love us. He's never tossed us overboard. Think of how we've slept in safety with Jesus at the helm during the worst storms of life. He's let us sleep in peace and rest in his accomplished work. And after all this, do we still doubt his ways? Do you not know that if you are in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this today, you are on the boat with him. And Paul says, for you are dead and your life is hidden now with Christ and God. Because I live, Jesus says, you shall live also. Unless we be tempted to face the trials of this life and say, Jesus, are you asleep the Bible makes it very clear that he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's awake, his eyes on the sparrow, 
What we see here on this little boat then in Galilee is really just a true picture of the church itself, of the bride of Christ. It's a pastor and his little flock. Here's the kingdom afloat in the midst of a tempest. And this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always been. The reality of the kingdom of God on earth is that we are placed in vessels of clay. That we have hung over a fire. That we have balanced on a razor's edge, facing impossible odds all throughout history. Just so that God might get the glory. That we might look at him and say, who is this man? Whether it hangs upon Noah, his little, little Noah, crazy old Noah, building an ark. When there's not a drop of rain in sight. Or the seed of old man Abraham and his barren wife. Or Joseph being tossed out by his brothers to die in order to save them from a famine. What about King David facing a giant? The evil machinations of a king. All of these with a kingdom on the boat. It's always been a small faithful remnant. Someone carrying the torch, passing it on from generation to generation to generation. And all throughout history, that boat has been smashed against the rocks by the Romans. It's been buffeted by persecution from China, from North Korea, from Iran, even in America. And time and time again, we sail onward, heading towards the promised land with Christ, our captain. Churches subject to trial, suffering, labor, peril, tears of blood for generations have covered the faces of the saints. But you see, what can separate us from the love of Christ that is in Jesus? What can separate us? Fire, flood, hurricane, pandemic. Can any of these things separate us from the love of God? Death could not hold him. And neither can it hold us. Nothing. What should we fear? Nothing. I think back uh, just recently to Hurricane Sally. And if you were like me, you had your phone on the alerts. You remember this? And tornado warnings, man, were buzzing every like five minutes. Every five to ten minutes. And my wife and I, I wasn't anxious. I wasn't fearful. I, I, I knew we were going to be okay. But I was up with this phone. And my kids were, love them, they're fast asleep. Well, I'm up. They are fast asleep, snoring in their beds. You know, they're fine. Why were my kids able to sleep despite the howling wind and the rain? It's because they trusted in us. They put their faith in mommy and daddy. And they knew they were going to wake up. And now you, dear children of God, after all of our experiences, after everything we've been through, after we've seen his might and his goodness and his wrath and his glory, do we not know that the Lord will save us? We've seen his redemption in ages past. Do we not know that he alone, he alone has the power to deliver us from all things? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You say that you may very soon lose your job. Can he not provide your every need? He does it for the entire universe with an utterance. He's done it for centuries. All of creation hangs upon his benevolent mercies and his gracious hand. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, none of them eat without his giving it to them first. And how much more precious, the Bible says, are all of us than a bunch of birds. 
How much more precious are we than birds? Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, talks about our lack of faith in this way. He says, But he who has shown his marvelous skill in creation and his wondrous wisdom in redemption and also in providence, do you think that he miscalculates or misses the mark he aims at? Or that he can in any way err? Oh, cast away this dishonoring reflection upon the Lord as you hear him say to you, Why art thou fearful, O thou of little faith? So here we are. Two years later, and the boat continues unabated. The Lord has carried First Presbyterian Church this far. And he's going to continue to carry us onward through cancer, through COVID, through divorce, through uncertainty, through fear, tremendous loss, and yes, even death. Christ will hold us fast. What a joy. He's never been surprised. He's not hanging on the edge of his throne in heaven, waiting to see what's going to happen. He knows all things. He alone has the authority. I've been like Paul. Sometimes many of you have been like Paul, and we've come to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I have this thorn in my flesh. Would you just remove this thorn from my flesh? And the Lord knows that it will be best for many of us for us to actually bear those troubles just a little longer. He's working good out of them. You see, he puts us in the furnace he puts me in the furnace, and I need to cook a little bit until all the sin and the guilt and the shame, all of that is washed away by the blood of Christ. And when he pulls me out of that hot furnace, and he dips us in the cold, cool, refreshing waters of mercy and grace, pure sparkling gold is produced. And it hurts for a while, but the product is glorious. And so in these storms and these tempests, We are called to emptiness, we're called to weakness, and Christ promises us to be our fullness and our strength. Finally, finally, the last bit here. Let us now look at the untold wonders that we will witness by riding on Christ's vessel. Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You see, what a... What a wonderful thing the disciples got to witness. And in just a short couple of, of minutes, maybe seconds, they saw Jesus in his humanity, exhausted, tired from the day's work, all he's doing. And then on the other hand, they saw him in his full divinity, telling a storm, a tempest, to hush up. He literally says, be muzzled, as if it's a little puppy. Be muzzled, stop bothering us. They saw him for who he truly was, truly man. And truly God. Again, Spurgeon puts it most elegantly. He says, Then the Master rose up, and he displayed his power and his Godhead. You know how he has done so in reformations and revivals time after time. He has chided the unbelief of his trembling saints, and then he has hushed the winds and the waves. There's been a time of idyllic peace for his poor, weather-beaten church. A period free from bloodshed and heresy. An era of progress and peace. The church has a history which has many times repeated itself. If you take an interest in the navigation of that wondrous little vessel which carries Christ and all his chosen, you will never have to complain of a lack of incidents. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing, the life of a godly man and the life of a godly woman at sea. As they receive grace from Christ their captain, this is a museum of heavenly art. 
It's an exhibition of divine skill. It's a theme park of mercy and wonder to be on the boat with Christ. So let us indulge our wonder. Let us be like children as we come to this story, as we stand in awe of this man. Let us marvel at how he sings the tempest to sleep. Think of how he's worked in your life, contrary to your own nature. He's moved you from death to life. He justifies the wicked and the ungodly. His kingdom is that he is the kingdom, he is the power, and he is the glory forever and ever. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Lord, we believe. We believe. Now help our unbelief. I look at all that God has done in my life time and time and time again, and I find my lack of faith very disturbing. Very disturbing. Oh, that God would open my eyes to trust him more, to love him more, to rest on his sovereign hand. So what's our response? Our response is, of course, praise. It's adoration. It's obedience. The love of Christ now compels us to go love our neighbors, to to spread this message to others. We want more people on the boat. We want more people on the boat. If you're standing on the shoreline today, if you're like those two disciples, and you're watching this little ship sail along, I want to invite you to come aboard. Some of you listening today think that you're swimming and in reality you're drowning. And Jesus calls us fishers of men and we're casting our nets out. And we're hoping to catch men and women alive. Oh, you of little faith, take heart. What a, what a blessed thing. Oh, you of little faith, because all that Christ requires is just a little faith. And he will take that little faith and he will turn it into a mighty oak rooted and established in him who is the living word. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? I'm going to leave you with a final story of a man who lived a faithful life at sea with Christ. There was a preacher and a pastor named John Harper who boarded the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. He was a, a widower and the Titanic, as you know, was the unsinkable ship, and it sunk. It hit an iceberg. And he could have gotten on the boat with his daughter, him being a widower, he could have gotten with her as the sole provider, but he didn't. He chose instead to provide the masses with one more chance to know Christ. You see, John Harper ran from person to person. He passionately told them all about Jesus. And as the water began to submerge the ship, Harper was heard shouting, Women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats! Rebuffed by a certain man at the offer of salvation, Harper gave him his life vest saying, You need this more than I do. Harper struggled through hypothermia as the ship sank. He swam to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. Harper eventually would lose his battle the hypothermia, but not before giving many, many people one last glorious gospel witness. Four years after the tragedy, there was a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, Canada, and one survivor was there, and he recounted his interaction with Harper in the final moments of his life. And he testified that he was clinging to ship debris when Harper swam up to him. Twice he challenged him to an invitation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. He rejected the first offer, yet given the second chance. 
and miles of watery, icy water below him, he finally accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He concluded his remarks at the meeting and he said this, I am the last convert of John Harper. Jim Elliott, another famous missionary who gave his life, he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And beloved, both Elliot and Harper are in paradise. They're in paradise because they gave up that which they couldn't keep to gain what they could never lose. May God increase our faith as we ride this tiny vessel through many, there will be more hurricanes, there will be new pandemics, there will be new threats, new trials, new tribulations, but Christ is with us. And our little church is here, our brothers and sisters, and we're sailing together. And Christ is our captain. He's not asleep. He's with us. So may we live lives and even have glorious deaths that would lift high the name of Christ, that his message might go forth. May he be forever praised. Let's pray.